A man was uh, on a diet and struggling, and he had to go downtown as he uh, started out to work, and he remembered that his route that he took would take him by the donut shop. You may have that route. As he got closer, he thought that a cup of coffee would really hit the spot. Then he remembered, wait, I'm on a diet. That's when he prayed. Lord, if you want me to go for a donut and coffee, let there be a parking place in front of the shop. You've never prayed those prayers, I know. And he said, sure enough, I found a parking place right in front of that donut shop. It took me seven times, but I found that spot. (laughs) We're in the book of James, and James begins his theme in James 1. In verse 2 is really the theme of the book of James. And what the book of James unfolds is is developing what James, the half-brother of Jesus, says in verse 2 and verse 3. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That's the the theme that James wraps his thoughts around. So let's stand and let's look together at verses 12 through 16 and read. And uh, I'm going to read and you follow along in honor of God's word this morning. And I'm reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version. You may have a different version. That's okay. Uh, We'll all wind up at the same place. So if you want to follow with me or just listen, either way, be ready and have your Bibles to be engaged with God. I believe that when we open the Bible, we're inviting God to speak to us. Do you believe that? I believe that. I believe that when we open this book in a corporate setting or personal setting, we're inviting God to speak to us because this is His Word. And so as we open and we read and we engage our minds, we engage ourselves, we're fully here in participants of hearing God today and hearing His voice. So uh, let's read, and I'm going to read and you follow, verse 12 through 16. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, your version might use the word lust, and we'll talk about that, verse 15. Then desire... When it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. You may be seated and thank you for your attention to the word of God. James, as I said, is the half-brother of of Jesus. He only came to realization that Jesus was the Savior after and following the resurrection. He grew up 
of course, with Jesus. He was the, uh, James was the son of Joseph and Mary. But he himself did not come to that revelation that Jesus is the Son of God until after Jesus rose from the dead. So James, we know from history, is the pastor of the local church in Jerusalem. That's his role. He's certainly one of the chief apostles uh, there in Jerusalem. And James, writing this letter, you notice in verse 1, he's writing it to those who have been dispersed, those who are scattered. Great persecution was taking place in Jerusalem, and believers, most of them Jews, probably all of them Jews, who became Christians, were facing persecution not only from their fellow Jews, their families, their employers, whatever, but they were also facing persecution from the Gentiles, pagans, non-believers. As I said, it's like the guy in the south who wore a blue jacket and gray pants. He got shot at from the north and the south. They were getting it from both sides. And so they fled out of survival, many abandoning their businesses, their homes, their families. So that's who he's addressing it to. And so when he talks about count it all joy when you go through various trials, he's not talking to people that live in la-la land. They're in intense persecution and trials. That's who he's addressing. And as he's talking about these trials, one of the trials that every Christian deals with is the trial of temptation, the enticement. Temptation is the enticement to sin, to do what is contrary to the will of God. The will of God's revealed in the what? The Word of God. And so sin, temptation, is always working at us, trying to angle us to disobey the Word of God, to disobey. And again, I'm, I'm addressing believers. If you're not a Christian, you're always giving in to sin. You're always giving in to that because there is no power of the Spirit to help you make the, the choices that you need to make, to give you the strength to say no to unrighteousness, as Titus Chapter 2 would remind us, and we'll look at that verse a little later. But here's the principle that I want you to hear this morning. You and I, again, I'm talking to Christians right now. You and I will not make it as a Christian if you and I do not learn to deal and overcome temptation in our life. Just not going to make it. Just not going to make it. I'm going to read that again. You and I will not make it as believers if we do not learn and apply the tools and resources that God has given us to overcome temptation, to do that which we know is contrary to the purposes and will of God. Every week I remind us that the title of this is called James, the Gospel of On the ground, James, the gospel on the ground. The gospel is always at work in our life. The gospel is always pressing us, moving us further and further in conformity to live lives of authenticity that match what we profess, to live real lives that are exemplary to the gospel, not perfection that we have attained, but lives that match what we say, what we believe, lives that are lived out by the gospel. James is saying, okay, you believe the gospel, here's how you live it. Here's the shoe leather faith that you need to walk it out. That's what James helps us to do. And one of the ways that the gospel works in our life 
is enabling us to face sin in our life. Yes, sin in our life. Aren't you excited? You're going to hear a message about sin today. Doesn't that thrill you? See, that's the thing about when you preach through a book of the Bible. Because if I had my choice, I would just, oh, well, we're going to skip that. But that isn't what God wants us to hear this morning. He wants us to hear because he knows, he knows your pastor and he knows you. And he knows what we battle. He knows what we face. And he knows that the resources and tools that he's given us in his word are things that we need. I need. You need. And the Bible says there in James that if you lack wisdom, wisdom is knowing how do I do the right thing? How do I take truth and apply it in my life? Well, he's giving us some wisdom here this morning. And we need to be ready to hear it. And I hope that you're ready to be engaged with the word of the Lord. And so the gospel helps us to face sin, but the gospel also helps us to apply truth into our lives. It is uncomfortable. It may make us a little uh, uh, uneasy at times, but if we are born again, if we have been regenerated, made made new, we are new creatures in Christ Jesus, guess what? We will not remain comfortable in a life of disobedience to God. And I'll just say this right now. If you are comfortable in a continual pattern of disobedience to God, then I, I believe that you need to really evaluate whether you're even a believer or not. Because I do not believe that if you're a child of God, it doesn't mean you won't go through valleys, you won't go through failures, you won't blow it. I'm not talking about that. But if you're comfortable and you're disinterested in, 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 in allowing the Spirit to work and clean and work in those areas that you know that God is not pleased with, then you need to really determine, God, am I even, am I even saved? Am I even a believer? You know, many times in pastoral ministry, there's times you just beat your head against the wall trying to get people to do the right thing. And then it, it dawns on me, you know what they need? They need the gospel. They need, they need to, first of all, give their lives because they're trying to, you know, as Jim is teaching us, they're trying to bring reformation. They're trying to reform themselves. They're, they're trying to renovate the old man. Jesus wants us to be new creatures. And so remember that when we are born again, saved, regenerated, put your word that helps you put that together, we are freed when we are justified by God. We Receive Jesus Christ as our Savior, our Lord. We are freed from the penalty of sin. As we walk, as we apply the gospel in our new life, always through the power of the Holy Spirit, we become freed and are overcoming the power of sin in our life. And then one day, when we are with Jesus for all eternity, guess what? We will be freed from the, what? Presence of sin. Okay? But right now, we're in this in-between stage. We have been freed uh, from the penalty of sin, but we have been freed and we are being freed from the power of sin. And that's where James meets us today. We're in this in-between scenario as Christians. We are saved. We have come to faith in Christ we are now walking out this faith. Sometimes you'll hear, hear the word sanctification. That's the process of conforming our lives to the gospel. 
But then one day when I draw my last breath and I see him face to face, guess what? I will be forever and eternally free from the presence of sin. Won't that be a wonderful thing? You won't have to battle the junk you and I battle with. And so this morning, in looking at a strategy that is in the word of the Lord, because James writes it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, James gives us a strategy for overcoming the deadly lure. You know what a lure you fish? Robert spends some fishing. Is uh, Dave here this morning? I'm glad I didn't depend on him to bring a lure, but we have some fishermen here, and you know what a lure is. Well, we want to overcome the lure, L-U-R-E, of temptation. And there's three areas that James helps us in this passage with in overcoming temptation. And one is that we need to recognize, if we're going to overcome temptation, we need to recognize its source. We need to recognize, secondly, its force. And thirdly, we need to recognize its course. Isn't that cute? All rhymes. Well, this morning, so you can breathe easier, we're only going to look at the first one. I've got it all here, but I realize we'd probably be here till about 1230, and that probably would not make me very popular with most of you. So we're just going to look at the first part, and that is this. To overcome temptation, we need to recognize the source of this temptation. Verse 13 uses the word tempted, tempted. Uh, It's the same word in the Greek that is translated trial in verse 2. Same word, but it has two different senses in the word of God. God, it's the same word as verse 2 when, it, when you come into various trials, but it's that same Greek word that the translators use, translated tempted in verse 13. And here, here's what I'm talking about. Is God tests and tries the believer. He tries the believer's faith, tests their faith, but He does not tempt anyone to sin. God tested Abraham by asking him to lay his son Isaac on the altar, tested him. God tested Job, allowing, in God's sovereignty, allowing Satan to afflict Job in a very limited way with various trials, and they were pretty serious trials. He tests both the righteous and the wicked to reveal their respective character. Remember King Saul? Everybody wanted a king. They wanted a king, the nation of Israel, like everybody else. And so they saw this guy Saul on the cover of People magazine, the sexiest man alive. And guess what? They said, that's our guy. That's our guy. Tall, dark, and handsome. Everything I never was. (laughs) God has mercy in that. And you giving you mercy too, so you quit laughing, all right? I'm looking at all of you. Saul was anointed by God. Do you realize that? That's why David said when he had opportunity to kill him, he said, touch not God's anointed. That does not mean you can't criticize preachers on TV. That drives me nuts. Hello? I don't know what that's talking about. But what had happened? Saul failed tests given him by God to reveal what was in his heart. He did not have a heart 
for God. Like David says, when, he reject, when God rejected Saul, God said, I'm going to raise up one who has a heart after me. Saul had a heart after his own self. He was always bent to doing what was pleasing the crowd, what was, what was necessary for him to remain in power. Failing. You remember when he offered an early sacrifice because Samuel the prophet, God's anointed priest prophet at the time, did not show up and the enemy was surrounding and people were getting upset and they were getting nervous and things were getting testy and Saul just said, give it to me, I'll do it. He usurped his authority and violated the clear word of God. And then you remember when Samuel, again through the word of the Lord, said to go and I think the King James says, utterly destroy the Amalekites. Now, don't worry about who the Amalekites are. They were bad guys. They were enemies of Israel. And God told Saul and his army to go and, and clean it out. And Saul did partly what God told him to do. Do you realize half disobedience, half obedience is full disobedience? And he kept the choice Animals even kept King Agag. I'll always remember King Agag. Rehoboam and Jeroboam, I get them all mixed up. But King Agag, maybe because I want to gag when I think, no, King Agag, I remember. And he kept all this, and then when Samuel came into the camp, he heard the noise of the sheep, the bleating of the sheep, the King James says, and he said, what is this? And Saul gave a nice religious answer. That's what we do sometimes, isn't it? We, we give a religion. God told me. God didn't tell you. Quit saying that. Saul said, oh, I saved all these. Talking about the, the choice animals. said, I saved them in order to sacrifice them to the Lord. He didn't do that. He just wanted it. But again, what's the point? God tested Saul and Saul was found wanting. God will test his people to refine our faith. Remember what Peter says? Just listen, and I'm going to read this from the New Living Translation. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. You may want to make a note of that, but just listen, reading from the New Living Translation. Peter writes, So be truly glad there is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. Though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. And then he goes down to verse 12. He says, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through as if something strange was happening to you. Instead, be very glad. That's kind of James language. Count it all joy for these trials. Listen to this. These trials make you partners with Christ in His suffering so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing His glory when it is revealed to all the world. If you're insulted because you bear the name of Christ, you will be blessed. For the glorious Spirit of God rests upon you. You're being persecuted. Now, in America, we, we, you know, we're still not sure all what that is. We think because somebody flips us off because we got a fish on the back of our car, we think that's persecution. But I'm not sure that's exactly what those Coptic Christians would call 
persecution at facing the blade of an ISIS nut. Hello? But that promise is equally true. So because, stay with me, we're talking about the source. If we're going to deal with temptation, temptation that leads us into disobedience and sin, we were identifying the source of that temptation. And because of indwelling sin... And the existence of Satan, the Bible is very clear. In fact, James will talk about uh, resisting Satan. He goes about like a, uh, or Peter says that, but he says resist the devil and he'll flee from you. He says that later in James. But because of indwelling sin and the existence of a devil, Satan, that the Bible speaks of, every test of temptation can become sin or it can become a trial. You know what the issue is? The issue is, is the choice that we make when we face it. What we do, what, how we respond as believers. And so if we are out of step in fellowship with the Lord, if we're out of step even right now, this is a warning by the Word of God to pay attention because it would not be unusual in a congregation of this size, that there are many here that are teetering on the threshold of behaviors and activities that will destroy you and destroy your lives and destroy your family. I'm not saying you're going to be killed physically, but you're playing with areas and you're playing with fire. And the Holy Spirit has you here by the will of God, He has you here. You're not here by accident. It's not accidental that this word at this moment in this time is in your hearing and what you and I do with it. Remember, I've had to live with this for a few weeks. You're just having to put up with it for a few minutes. Nevertheless, it's the Spirit of God speaking into our lives and warning us and giving us direction. And so as we're talking about identifying and recognizing the source, we need to be reminded of something that James makes very clear in verse 13. He said, temptation never comes from God. We must never blame God for tempting us. Isn't that what it says in verse 13? Look at it. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God... For God cannot be tempted with what? God does not tempt you with evil. But we're always looking for someone to blame. Adrian Rogers said that America's favorite pastime isn't football, baseball, hockey. It is blame. We're always looking for somebody to sue or blame about something. We read stories of the woman who sued McDonald's because the coffee was too hot. Hello? Lawsuits were always looking for someone to blame. And that shouldn't be any surprise. What did Adam and Eve do? Remember the very beginning? They, they fell into sin, our fallen human nature. Ever since then, we've been prone to blame somebody for our evil and our sin. And when God confronted Adam, what did he do? He replied, hey, the re-, he didn't say hey, but <laughs> this woman, this woman you gave me, that's why I did it. And the woman, she had somebody to blame. It's that snake. He's the blame. Ultimately, we're, Adam's blame is going back. Ultimately, he's blaming God. He says, God, you set me up. 
You set me up. You put this woman here. She got me into trouble. That's why, we're, I'm, that's why I did it. James says, look, if we're going to go down that route, if we're going to go down that route, we will never, ever have any progress in the area of temptation and sin in our life. Because you know what we're doing? We're impugning, maligning the character of God. James says, don't go down that road. Don't blame God. Proverbs 19.3 says, when a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. The New Living Translation of that same verse says, people ruin their lives by their own foolishness, and then they're angry with God. Boy, do we not know some folks that that fits with. They've gotten themselves in a mess because of their own disobedience of sin, and I'm angry at God. Why are you blaming God? You're the one that did it. The Bible has numerous examples of shifting blame. One of the ones that I'll just I'll mention is uh, when Moses was on the mount and he was receiving the law of God, he had brother Aaron holding the fort down, remember? The Bible says that what did they do down there? They made themselves a golden calf, kind of probably like they had one of their idols back in Egypt. And, they, and Aaron told them, Aaron told them to go and bring all their jewelry. They melted it down and formed out of tools and they made a golden calf and began to worship. And so when Moses, uh, in fact, God says, listen to that. Listen to that. Listen to what, what they're doing. And he goes down there and he's incredulous at what they're doing. And when Aaron is confronted by Moses, he lamely says, this is, this is really, I'm not making this up. In Exodus 32:24, Aaron says that the golden calf came about because they threw the jewelry into the fire and it just popped out a calf. It's easy to blame somebody for our sin, isn't it? It's very convenient to blame parents, spouse, the economy, job status, education. President Obama is really good for a lot of blame for our lives, right? That's handy. The problem is us, gang. That's what James is driving at. We can cite Bible verses. Even, you know what's even really... F- <laughs> is when we try to use theology to support our sin. We rationalize, well, God is sovereign over all things, so He has to be sovereign even over my sin. If he predestined everything before the foundation of the world, how could I escape from doing it? I I mean, I'm not to blame. Besides, he works all things together for good, so even in my sin, he's going to work it for good. My friends, that is faulty, faulty thinking and certainly is not biblical. James nails that way of thinking, twisting Scripture, using God as an excuse to sin. He says, God cannot, the Greek, Aramaic, means cannot. God cannot be tempted by evil. He does not use sin to entice you to sin. That's a violation of who He is. The Bible says in 1 John 1, 5, God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. Habakkuk 1.13, your eyes are too pure to approve evil and you cannot even look 
on wickedness with favor. James would say in verse 13, God does not tempt anyone. So if we want to overcome temptation, identifying its source, we must from the outset get it out of our minds that blaming God is the answer. So if that is not the answer, where is the source? Look at verse 14 of your passage. But each person, say each person, is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his or her own desire. So where's the source? The Word of God says, in fact, it doesn't even mention the devil. Now I have to make, you know, every week I come and date myself by making a reference to something back in the 70s. But from Flip Wilson, the devil... I know I'm among family here. You remember that? The devil made me do it. That was the refrain from the character that he did. James isn't ignoring the role that Satan plays in our life because, as I said, he will reference him in chapter 4, verse 7 when he talks about resisting the devil. But here he's saying, look, Don't blame God. You want the source of why you're in the mess you're in? Look at yourself. Look at yourself. Look at your choices. Look at your decisions. Quit trying to dodge responsibility. Take responsibility. Own up to responsibility. Quit calling your disobedient choices, well, I have a disease. I'm not negating the fact that there are physiological effects because of sinful choices. But we're talking about the root cause of why I do what I do, and the root is me, myself, and I. There will never be any hope for overcoming temptation and the propensity and the the bend to turn to sinful choices until we acknowledge that it is our sin that I love. It's my sin that I love. And I do it because I want to do it. Come on, let's quit playing games. People say, I don't know what happened. I I don't know how I got to this place. Well, you got dressed. You probably checked your bank account if you haven't had enough money to go do what you did. You got in your car. You pulled out a key. You started the engine. You might have had to get gas. You drove, I mean, you with me? All along the way. For a believer, he's saying, don't, no, don't do this. But you and I run the red lights long enough. We don't see the red lights. But I assure you, you run the red lights long enough. Sooner or later, what's going to happen? It's going to be a crash. It's going to be a crash. It may not happen this week. May not happen this month, may not even happen this year, might not happen for five years, ten years. But I assure you this, and we'll look at this more in depth later and as James develops this, is there will be a crash. You cannot change, I cannot change what I do not acknowledge. But James says in verse 14, he says, Temptation comes, the New Living Translation, the temptation comes from our 
own desires which entice us and drag us away. Your version might say lust. The ESV uses the word desire. It's the same word, but it's different in the application. Uh, Sometimes a good desire may have legitimate use, and it also could be a legitimate desire that can be turned and used for sinful abuse. Hunger, which probably some of you are thinking right now. That's a legitimate desire. When Satan tempted Jesus and said, turn these stones into bread, it wouldn't have been an authentic, real temptation if one, Jesus wasn't hungry... And it wasn't enticing. That's what a temptation is. So hunger is a legitimate issue. But stealing to satisfy your hunger is not a legitimate action. Gluttony, the Bible talks about. We use the verse in churches where Paul says, I buffet my body. We think that says, I buffet my body. That is not what that's saying. And Lord knows I need to hear that. God created sex, not the pornographers, not Hugh Hefner. He didn't invent God's idea. Sex was God's idea. But any illegitimate use of sexual desire outside of the boundaries that God has created, not the culture, not the new norm, God has created boundaries in which sexual expression is to be made within the confines of a married man and woman. Male and female, He created them. I don't care what culture says. That's God's Word. So, illegitimate... You say, but wait a minute, but my, but my feelings, my body is screaming a different way. Let it scream. Just because our bodies scream to sin, that's where, again, we need the power of the Word and Spirit in our life. It does not negate God's Word. Let me just mention this because I think this is helpful. Well... I'm going to pick that up next week. Let me, re- let me close with this. Let me close with this. I'm going to pick that up next week because I think that's worth a little time for us to take. Some of you know who Charles Swindoll is. How many of you listen or know who Charles Swindoll, Chuck Swindoll, Insight for a Living, wonderful Bible teacher? And He tells the story that I've used it many times uh, first time here because I've never taught through James before. But in his book, Three Steps Forward, Two Steps Back, he talks about the, when the opportunity of sin knocks at your door. And I want you to listen. Okay? I'm not holding you long. So you can... I know you'll catch up on that hour you lost this afternoon. So... But when opportunity of sin knocks, who and what you are will determine which door... We open. Listen to what he says. Chuck Swindoll says, I was in Canada months ago, this probably years ago, and I've been away from home eight days, and there were two more 
days to go to a weekend. I was lonely and having a pity party for myself at supper alone one night. I bought a newspaper, thumbed through the sports section, and found nothing but hockey, the favorite sport of Canadians, but not mine. I heaved a sigh and walked toward the elevator to go back to my room. En route, I heard a couple of young women talking and laughing as they used the hotel phone in the lobby. I smiled as I passed by, and a few steps later, punched the up elevator button. I got on, and so did the two ladies. I punched six. They didn't reach for the row of buttons, so I asked, what for? One looked at me rather sensually and said, how about six? Do you have any plans? Swindoll says, we were all alone on the elevator in Canada. I was flattered. To be honest, since most folks don't usually mistake me for Robert Redford or James Garner, these women were available and I was lonely and I was anonymous where I was. He says, on that trip from the lobby to the sixth floor, I had an extremely significant decision to make. The bait had been dropped. He said, do you know what immediately flashed through my mind? My wife and four children? No. My position and reputation as a Pastor of a large church with an international media ministry heard throughout the world? No. The possibility of being set up or seen or blackmailed? Nope. God gave me an instant visual replay of His Word that I planted in my heart. He said, what immediately came to my mind was Galatians 6, 7. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. And then Ephesians 6, 11. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Then he said Romans 6, 11 and 12. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not... Let sin reign, rule in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. He said, during that elevator lift, the memorized word of God flew to my rescue right on time. He said, as I look back at the two women, I replied, I've got a full evening planned already. I'm not really interested. They looked at me like I was somewhere off of another planet as I stepped off that elevator, and they stayed on. I walked to my room, suddenly grateful for the overcoming power of God's book. And as I write these words, I am filled with the renewed strength because His Word has kept me faithful again and again. For He says at the time, 25 years of marriage, but I'm sure it's at least 40 now. When opportunity knocks... Who and what you and I are will determine what door we open. Guys, listen. This is real stuff. This is real stuff. You know it and I know it. God's Word is helping us. Helping us. Is it easy? Is it tough? Yeah, it is. But God has resourced us with His Word filling us with His Spirit, 
with the words of what Titus says. I'm just going to read it as Sherry comes. Titus 2.11. I would encourage you to read Titus 2.11-14. Titus says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Verse 12. Pay attention to this. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. What does the grace of God do? The King James says, teaches us to say no, to say no to unrighteousness. The grace of God teaches us to say no. No, I'm not going to do it. And it teaches us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Good works don't save you, but they're the fruit of a gospel life. I don't know if that moves you, bores you, doesn't matter. That's food that I need. Because that tells me that I do this because I'm outfitted by the grace of God. I lean heavily into the grace of God. And when temptation comes, just like a compass that knows where the north point is, no matter where you're at, your compass by God's word is always going to bend you to holiness and righteousness. And what you do in that moment will determine eternity, will determine eternity.